This episode of Faculty Meeting is brought to you by Blackfall Press. Blackfall Press is a publishing company that published the game Cold Steel Wardens, role-playing in the Iron Age of comics. We've talked about this game several times. We have featured the designer, Andy A.P. Klosky, on the show. We've done an actual play of it. It is not a stretch to say that this is one of our favorite games, and it is currently my favorite Supers games. The game is a winner of a Bamsey Award for Best Genre Emulation, and it brings a great blend of action, investigation, and moral quandary to your game table. Starting on August 1st, Blackfall Press will be relaunching the Kickstarter for the first Cold Steel Warden's follow-up book, Rogue's Gallery. Uh, This one features a whole legion of mooks and masterminds all taken from the notes of one of my favorite characters, Sawbones. I've played Cold Steel Wardens three times. I've played Sawbones every time. I kind of feel like he's my character in a way. Uh, So this is certainly very near and dear to my heart. So if you like your comics dark and gritty, if you love Daredevil and Jessica Jones on Netflix, and if you want a game where you can be the Batman and have street level super games, then Cold Steel Wardens is what you're looking for. So I hope that starting on August 1st, you'll take a look at the new Kickstarter pledge levels. There are some that will give you the original game as well. And on August 1st, we want the rogues to break free into the world so that everyone can use them in their games. So thank you to Blackfall Press for sponsoring this episode. And I look forward to seeing your name as a backer on their Kickstarter. Hello and welcome to Faculty Meeting, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me tonight, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how you doing tonight, sir? Uh, I'm sweating. It's really freaking hot. But other than that, I'm good. Excellent. Uh, I have actually brought along a couple extra people this time as well. Uh, Scott, how are you doing this fine evening? Uh, howdy, all you kids out there in Radio Land. I am fine. Also warm. I'm I'm wearing outer shorts that are basically the same size as my undershorts. Thanks for sharing. And Matthew? I'm not wearing shorts. Perfect. So what we try to do here with these faculty meeting episodes is to share some of the experience that we have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that uh, some of the advice we give and the opinions we share may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is fairly universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you're playing, what system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, you're playing it right. Before we get into tonight's topics, though, uh, just a quick shout out to our patron backers over on Patreon.com. If you are interested in supporting our show, uh, there's a lot of ways you can do that. One is to leave us a review on iTunes. Another is to use our Amazon link to buy things. And of course, if you want to donate some money financially to us, you don't have to. We will always be free. Uh, But if you want to shell out some bucks to help us out, go over to Patreon.com slash TheRPGAcademy. And then if you're fairly new and you want to get a hold of us, uh, you can find me on Twitter at the RPG Academy. You can also email me at Michael at the RPG Academy dot com. Caleb, what about you? Where can people find you? Uh, this time of year, 
in my closet in the dark behind three fans. But if you want to find me on Twitter, it's at the Caleb G. <laughs> and on email? What's email? It's like really long Twitter. Oh, that really long no character limit Twitter. Yep. Uh, the best way to email me is uh, through the show, Caleb at the RPG Academy. All right. And then Scott and Matthew, since you guys are joining us tonight, same for you. Scott, where can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out and interact with you? Uh, you can always get a hold of me at, at Pachetra, P A C H E T R A, on Twitter, or uh, my email address, uh, Caleb or Michael at RPG.academy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll filter that straight over there for you <laughs> all right and then matthew uh how can people get a hold of you oh boy if i had a twitter it would be at matt parody and if i was hiding anywhere on the internet it would be at that name you can find me on youtube facebook gmail everywhere because i don't hide come find me hollywood and make me famous what <laughs> excellent all right, so we have a couple quick things we want to get to uh, before we get into the meat of tonight's show. Uh, the first, I want to talk a little bit about Gen Con, just very quickly. Uh, if all goes right, this episode will come out before uh, Gen Con. So the any nomination, or the, I should say the any voting is closed, so at this point we can no longer affect the outcome. We will know who won on Friday night of Gen Con, which I believe is the 5th. Oh, there's ways we can affect the outcome. <laughs> oh, <laughs> So, so somewhere around nine o'clock on August fifth, we will know one way or the other uh, if we have won. And we've said it before; we'll say it again. The nomination itself is a huge honor, and you know, winning would be great. I'm not going to say it wouldn't be, but just the nomination itself was fantastic. And um, thanks to all you guys who support what we do and make it a little bit easier for us to put in the time, effort, and energy. Uh, I posted my schedule on the Facebook page. I'll do it again because it's updated a little bit. Nothing changed except things were added. So if, if I was already scheduled to be somewhere, I'm still going to be there. But I filled in some of the gaps with some pickup games and stuff like that already, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. And Gen Con did contact me about our pre-Gen Con and our post-Gen Con events. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we will get official space for those very soon so i'll be able to tweet that out and people can actually register and sign up and know where we're going to be uh the only downside to that is they made me change the title or the type so it's no longer considered an entertainment event it's it's a game event and they charge for those so it's possible that you will actually have to buy a ticket which will cost money but what i will say is you don't have to just screw them. If they give me space, I'll tell you where it is. You show up. We'll play the games. Who cares? And they just won't give me space next year because no one paid money for it this year. But we'll worry about that next year. Because I just think it's dumb for you to have to pay money to come hang out to what should be a free event. So anything from anyone else? I think I'm the only one going to Gen Con from our gallery here tonight. But uh, is there anything about Gen Con you guys want to talk about? Anything you're excited about or just want to mention? I think we should definitely bring up the Gen Con contest for our listeners. Yes, we actually haven't had any submissions yet. Uh, there's there's money on the table here, people. All you have to do is email us and tell us what you think we should change the show titles to if we, for some reason, ever had to do that. So podcast at the RPGacademy.com and just tell us what you think a good show title would be if we had to change it. And uh, so far, no one's entered. So if you enter, you probably have a really good chance of winning. <laughs> and just as a reminder for all you guys out there, emailing us to enter this contest puts you in the running for a $30 payout at Gen Con 
and a free ticket to a catacon this November 11th, 12th, and 13th in Dayton, Ohio. Which all of the people on this podcast will be at. Yes, that's true. My question is, uh, when is Gen Con over so we can start talking about a catacon? Because I'm not going to Gen Con. And, and that is actually, once Gen Con is over, we start ramping up towards the Catacon. We will send out the, the Game Master surveys. We're going to really kind of dive in and get everything organized. Uh, that is the weekend after next when we're recording this. It's August 3rd through, I guess, the 7th or 8th, whatever mm-hmm. that Sunday is. So after that is when it will be 100% at Catacon all the time up until November 11th, 12th, and 13th. We do still have tickets available on Eventbrite. We've sold six of them now. Oh, cool! And we also got a we we got a straight donation. Uh, our newest patron, uh, Richard, bought a ticket. He's coming, and he just gave us some extra money on top of it. Don't know why, but apparently he likes us, and we like him for it. So thank you, Richard. So plenty of badges still available, and um, just go to theacaticon.com. There's a link right there on the front so that you can uh, go to Eventbrite and purchase your ticket there. All right, so let's move into a, this is a kind of a revisit topic. A couple episodes ago, we had a question that came in from Scott uh, where he was trying to come up with a way to model within the game a game that one of the players, or PCs I should say, was playing. Somewhat like Magic the Gathering where you would you know, improve your deck over time and as you're competing it would get better and better. And we came up with a couple different options that I thought all were viable. Uh, Scott got back in touch with me, used none of them, but I thought that what he came up with is actually pretty ingenious as well. So I just wanted to share that essentially he started with a number of NPCs. I think it was four or eight. And they were all just completely average. So they all had eights in like every stat. They had no modifiers to anything. And as he improved, as he went, he gave his characters bonuses. So their strength would go up to 10 or to 12. They would get proficiencies or armor So basically, he then had an NPC he could battle with in the game, and they were better the more he played the game in the world. I thought that was a pretty cool idea. What do you guys think? Interesting. So so representing a a collectible, improvable system just as another character, because the game already has rigid rules for a collectible, improvable system. Pretty much. So rather than creating a subsystem like we were trying to do, he just took what the game already does... And modeled it that way, which is actually quite ingenious, I thought. You know, it, it makes sense. I mean, why um, why try to... Everybody already knows what the D20 means. Everybody already knows what a stat means. I, I encountered a similar thing when I was trying to stat out organizations. And I thought, you know, why can't they just have strength, dex, con, int, whiz, cha, right? They have a resistance to being taken over. They have some sort of uh, wisdom and intelligence, charismatic organizations. That That's not a bad array of stats to use. No, and what I think is kind of funny, the fact that we didn't come up with that, because that is the advice or some of the advice we've given for squad-based tactics, where people have said, you know, we want to fight with war. We said, okay, we'll just create each squad is like an NPC and give them stats. And then if your character interacts with that squad, they get bonuses. If you're fighters in that squad, bump up their the uh, strength of that NPC slash squad to 18. If they, there's a wizard, they get magic resistance. So we, we had kind of already created that as a thing. We just didn't marry the concepts of squad tactics into that. So, yeah. So, um, again, go Scott. Kudos. Both this one and the other one, because I thought that was a good job. Okay. So let's get into our actual topic here. 
Uh, this comes from the world of Twitter, where a couple people I follow were having a conversation. And it's the idea of magic item wish lists. And I think there's a couple different ways that we might spread this topic out and might go into different places. But the crux of the conversation that I sort of witnessed was in fourth edition specifically, it was sort of baked into the rules that you could allow your players to essentially choose the magic items they wanted their players, excuse me, they wanted their characters to eventually get, provide that to the dungeon master, and then the dungeon master would do their best to make sure that those items were included in future loot drops. And the conversation going back and forth, one person was completely against this. It was anathema to the way they thought the game was supposed to work. And that if, uh, you know, players can just essentially pick and choose what's going to be in the loot, they kind of broke the immersion for that for that person. And I have quite a few thoughts, but as always, I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to turn over to you guys first. I'll start with Caleb. Do you have any general thoughts on magic item wish list or just giving magic items in general in the game? Like, you know, what is your philosophy behind that? What do you like to do, not like to do, that kind of stuff? I love giving out magic items. As we have established on previous shows, I am all about a high magic campaign setting. I like having magic items everywhere. I like them being easily accessible. You can go to the blacksmith shop and buy a regular weapon. You can go to the magic item shop and buy a magic weapon. I like having that stuff around. I like the concept of a magic item wish list because it is exactly that. It is a wish list. It is not a give this item to me tomorrow list. It is a I'd like to have this item at some point list. I think it demonstrates from the player's perspective uh, some forethought and some acknowledgement of how they want their character to grow and develop. And I think it gives the GM a sense of what the player wants out of their character, how this person wants his or her character to develop. And honestly, it makes things a lot easier because sometimes if you are randomly trying to throw items into a dragon horde or the loot that the players or that the PCs find in the aftermath of a goblin attack or something, you're just rolling random items and a whole bunch of garbage shows up. Why not take this as an opportunity to hand out some stuff that players have expressed interest in? Because that means they want to use them in the game. They're going to be more engaged and they're going to be more willing to drop these items into an encounter and actually use them. Okay, Matt, we'll uh, we'll go to you. You can approach this as a player or as a GM. What's your thought on magic item distribution and specifically wish lists? Uh, I recently did a wish list uh, scenario. That's not the right term, but I recently asked for wish lists from players in a recently um, quote hiatus campaign, and um, I thought it worked out well. Um, in this particular circumstance, the characters were going to be actually having these weapons made for them, or as close as I felt like giving to them. But I basically said, you know, look through the books, go on the internet, you find something you want, write it down put it in a Google Doc, send it to me, and I will give you something that I deem appropriate. But before that, I had asked them, like, what they want out of the campaign as a whole, and I tried to give them, like, that one thing so I could see what their characters actually wanted to do 
after they got this one trivial thing. Uh, 90% of them wanted money. So I just gave them all the money in the world because whatever. Like, I don't know what you guys are going to do with money. So here you go. And one guy wanted wish. So I gave him a magic wishing ring because I was like, okay, you you now have the ability to wish. You know, it didn't break the game for me because I could dictate what was going to happen from that point on. But uh, I don't have a problem with it. And just because they have a list doesn't mean everything's going to come off the list. You know, just like Caleb said, you know, it's... um, you could say, I want a sword of plus one. Okay, you got this sword. It's uh, it's plus one against humanoids. That's it. Well, that's not what I wanted. Well, d- d- either throw it out or use it. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> that That's the way I see it. Okay. All right, Scott, same, uh, same to you. I think uh, everybody's made great points. I think I would want to ask, um, I mean, wh- where, where do you draw the line, right? I, I think any game I've run has some degree of wish listing, right? Um, there will inevitably be one squeaky wheel player who uh, wants every treasure hoard to... Does this one have a plus one bow? How about the next one? How about the next one after that? We've been like five levels. There's been no plus one bows, you know? And um, so so I, I think even if you don't make an explicit, some players will just suggest to you in less or more subtle ways what they want. And also, I think... Um, even if you don't think you're consciously doing so, you're going to balance the treasure for what you think they want, right? You're probably not going to drop five magical full plates. You're going to drop one and one leather and one medium, right? Balancing out for the actual demands. Nobody likes a bunch of magical loot that no one can use. How unsatisfying is, you know, the leer of building for the party who has no proficiency in leer, right? It's 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 sort of a tease. So I I think uh, making it slightly more explicit than you would otherwise um, probably just makes clarity. Okay, so I'm sort of opposite of Caleb in many respects, as we Gee, know. Gee, <laughs> what a shock! <laughs> and just that I, I don't really like a lot of magic items in the game, which makes this kind of an interesting topic for me because there's not going to be a lot. You're not going to fight a random, you know, dungeon full of kobolds and at the end be three magic items that you're going to find. Except that magic sword. Except for the one magic sword that's in every game. That's actually a magic dagger. It's a magic dagger. Every (laughs) game has the same magic dagger. Um, So I don't want to put in magic items. When I do get around to giving them, I'm not going to give you something that isn't useful. Just like, like Scott said, the leer of building. It's a cool item in a certain type of game, but in the game I'm running... It's not the type of world where someone would have even made that. Magic items are so rare in my game, you're not going to find some of the weird, one-off, wondrous items that you find in others because no one has the ability to make them. They're, they're too difficult to make. They're too difficult to keep. But I don't like the idea of a wish list. There's just something about mm-hmm. that. I, I agree. It, 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 it kind of turns me off that as the DM, I want to give an item that will become important to your character even if it's not perfectly suited for your character, because they are so rare and so powerful that it might be worth using, even if you're not proficient with it. So you're the the swordsman who uses an axe because by God, that axe can kill goblins or giants or dragons better than anything else that you're ever going to come across. So I just, I'm kind of in that weird space. And I do want to just touch briefly that one of my pet peeves is when you kill a creature and you go through their loot and they have all these magic items that they should have been using. You know, it just doesn't make sense that you kill the orc captain who has plate mail plus three in a chest behind the throne. Why was the orc not wearing that? Why was they not why were they not using the sword of uh, in infinity? 
And I think what it comes down to is it makes it more difficult to balance the encounter. You go through the book, you pick out five goblins, but if you add plate mail plus three onto one of those goblins, what does that do to the balance? And it, it, I think it kind of scares DMs in creating a, 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 a challenging encounter. And so they just kind of throw them in at the end. They have the, or they have random tables. They're like, hey, we'll just roll for it. And uh, I had one experience, and this is probably where a lot of my you know, uh, opinions came from. This was in college. We were playing uh, second edition AD&D. And we, I played with a guy who was very much by the book. We fought something. I don't even remember what it was now. But he started using random tables to determine what magic items we found. But we had determined in some way that the items were hidden inside of a throne. So we had a you know, big chair, wooden legs and back, and like a red velvet seat. And we were cutting the seat open, and we literally found like plate mail in there. We found a long sword in there. We found, I'm like, what the bleep are you doing? Like, that was just so dumb. And I know that was a DM, not the game, but that was just like so infuriating to me. And like, this is such a dumb thing. I think that's where my, the nugget of me not liking a lot of Magic Adams mm-hmm. is based off of that game. Okay, so yes. Random item generation has to be tempered by logic and common sense. The old joke of, oh, I killed a bugbear. Oh, he has a plus two sword inside of him. <laughs> I mean, it, look, look at all the old school Final Fantasy RPGs. Anything in that style, you killed monsters in the field, you found gold, and you found items. And and the joke has existed for years how did I find this gold? Who cares? It's how the game moves forward. Shut up and deal with it. But the joke stands true. But that's a perfect example of not including logic. You as a person, you're not a video game. Use logic. Use common sense. If you're rolling on a random item table, say, okay, I randomly generated swords and armor. I'm not going to stick it inside the monster. It will be in a cave to the side. It will be underneath a rock where a fallen adventurer got crushed, that kind of thing. What I find really interesting is this whole thing kind of started with the fourth edition uh, loot or treasure packet concept. That concept worked really well if you looked at it because it told you over the course of going from level X to level Y, you should get this list of treasure. You should get something of about this much wealth. You should get these types of items and these number of items to scale appropriately. Because again, 4th edition was baked in, as you said, Michael, to require and necessitate magic items. That was part of the game. Not every game works like that. 4th edition needs magic items to function properly. So it told you right there, here's X dollar amount and 13 magic items. Hand it out over the course of these eight encounters. Here's an example. Give out this much gold and these three items in this encounter. This much gold and these four items in this encounter. And it told you right there, here's how to balance handing it out. You could go exactly what it said and say, I will give you this item exactly as it's listed, but there was still freedom to mix it up. It told you right in the book, hey, if this doesn't make sense based on your party or your game, flip the packets around. Grab a couple from this level, grab a couple from that level. Remember, 4th edition dictated magic items by their level, not necessarily what they were. It was 
find a level three magic weapon and you could go through and there was a dozen different level three magic weapons that you can pick and choose between. So that was, that was a very brief and not necessarily accurate sum, summary of fourth edition because it's been a while since I've read the books, but I'm on the right track. Yeah, no, like 3.5 and Pathfinder have what is commonly referred to as a feat tax. You you have to get certain feats at certain levels, and you need to choose certain ones to sort of keep up with the math of the game so that you don't get overshadowed and then the encounter balance still works. And 4th edition, they changed that to magic item. There was a magic item tax. If you did not get magic items at the correct rate, you would be underpowered by your level, which made encounter building more difficult for the DM. So you kind of were required to do so. And, and you know, I did the same thing when I played fourth edition. It would say, give out a third level magic item. I would just say, there's a third level magic item. You, I don't care which one you pick. You can, if you want a sword, if you want a dagger, if you want a armor, I don't care. You just need to get a third level magic item because I wanted them to have those things. And again, I wanted them to have something that made sense that they could use because I still didn't give out as necessarily as much as the book said, but you know, I tried, I tried to do as best I could. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think that's one of the things about fourth edition that I, I don't particularly care for is the, the requirement quote unquote, that you have to have magic items. Cause that's just so anathema to the way that I view the game that, that, which we didn't play it. We played a lot of it. But we played a lot of lower level stuff. So it didn't really, like, I don't think we had anything above six level the entire time I played. So it never got to the point where that was a huge issue if they didn't have a lot of different stuff. So I don't know. Is there anything else Inbounce has on comments on just their ideas of magic items, how you give them, you know, as, as a player or as a DM, anything that you can think of or examples uh, from your own games? A, a lot of focus goes into the, the question about magic items more or less. And um, uh, I feel like something often not discussed that is basically in parallel with this is is technology more or less. Do you give out muskets? How many? For what restrictions, right? Do you give out poisons? How easy is it to create your own poisons and add 3d6 damage onto every one of your attacks? Um, or sleep targets, right? The, I, I think there are a lot of uh, different ways this can express itself. Uh, magic items may be the most common, right? Uh, uh, rifts, right? Do you give out giant mechanized robots that have, you know, a thousand times your hit points and and do amazing damage to, like, some players, not other players? I, I think um, there's a lot of questions there about balance, right? And addition wars certainly matter. And I think ultimately um, it comes down to what works for your table. Matthew, you had a point you wanted to make? Yeah. Um, I was going to say that uh, I had a, in the same game that I was talking about before, uh, they encountered a group of centaurs and uh had to put them down for one reason or another and they had some rabies uh, some f- they did have rabies uh and they had some dwarven weapons that the centaurs were using it wasn't obviously tradition for them to have them but uh one guy picked one up and was like oh i was like well it's a dwarven made uh battle axe i was like you know it's pretty grimy because it's been you know used by centaurs for a while but it looks serviceable he was like okay cool and this other guy took uh, a maul of a similar build and then whatever amount of time later they find their way into a town the one guy said you know is talking to this uh young lady and she goes oh is that a dwarven weapon yeah she goes let me look at that oh wow this is actually a magic weapon let me clean this off for you and fix it up and blah 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 here you go and then i said to the other character don't you have an axe? And he said, oh, no, I didn't take that. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. And we just moved on. But I had every intention of giving them both two magic items, uh, you know, that I planned out. And I was like, well, 
you left that by the creek, so it's someone else has it. See you later. And we moved on. So the the method you're describing there is a way to introduce items but make them more important as the story develops. You could, for example, give a character a magic item, not tell them it's a magic item, Mm -hmm. but reveal its nature as a magic item later on based on a relationship with an NPC. And if they did not facilitate that relationship to its full extent, they may never know the quality of weapons or the type of magic ability that is available to them. Now, that is a little bit on the more cheaper manipulative side. It's obviously very much based on the story. And if your players are not into a game where it's all about digging into the NPCs and taking care of them and interacting with them, they never get that far. So if you have created a situation where that type of gameplay, that type of role-playing is happening, that would be possibly another way to introduce magic items and not just say, all right, guys, here's a plus three sword. All right, guys, there's your plus two cloak of resistance. And we've touched on this on some other episodes, so I don't want to get too far into it. But the idea of like legendary uh, or I'm sorry, legacy weapons where you start with an item and it grows in power as you grow. But you could even start with an item that's not magical. I think like the Dragon Age uh, Xbox, the first one does that where you get there's like runic magic where you can take just, you know, if you want to start with a, a hereditary weapon that was your great grandfather's was passed down from generations. So that's the weapon you want to use. You don't want to just throw that over your shoulder as soon as a plus one dagger shows up. But can you take that item that is, a, you know, equivalent to a mundane item, but it has emotional value to you and then turn it into a magic item i think that's a better solution in in some ways because you've already built a connection and then you make it magical then you allow it to get more powerful so that you don't have that situation where you're carrying around like a golf bag of all these different magic items like oh we're fighting werewolves today let me grab the werewolf weapon oh no it's giants let me switch that out you still have the one or two things that's important to you but they grow in power as you grow and I mean, there's there's mythology that models the finding of the thing, like, you know, Lord of the Rings, the One Ring, and then even Sting in the caves. And there's also the mythology that models that, you know, the the thing, the person grows more and more in power and the things around them are sort of imbued with that power so that when they die, that's how they become magical. So it's not like it's a, a wizard tower somewhere in a circle that is creating magic items. It's the fact that this hero of legend carried this weapon with him for 50 years he defeated all these great things and now it's magical when the next generation finds it and i i can find fun in both of those models yeah i mean uh and we've talked a little bit about balance but but sometimes balance doesn't even matter right i'm sure that if you give a level one halfling a ring of visibility a crazy story is probably going to come from that (laughs) a really terrible movie might (laughs) now there's one point i want to go back to And this is something you said, Michael. You said when you give a magic item to a character, you want it to mean something to that character. And you want it to develop into an important part of that character's story. But you also said that you didn't want it to be just something that the player wanted for the sake of utility. When you first said that, I kind of jumped to the point, and I'm just playing counterpoint to you. I I know that's not your true intention, but 
if you do not play that situation properly, it could be argued as taking away a little bit of player agency. Because it because if a character says, well, you know, I think it'd be cool to have a plus one axe, and you in your story instead hand out plus one armor with the hope that this plus one armor becomes part of this character's story and develops, it could be seen as leaning a little bit too heavily on trying to force a choice that the player didn't want to make. Now, again, I know it's not your intention. I'm just playing the devil's advocate to your point because we play counterpoints to each other. But I I think the validity behind this is if a player expresses interest in something, you should honor that interest. I agree to to a point with the caveat that why do they want it? And again, going back to fourth edition, if you've got your character planned out and you know that you need these three specific magic items because they marry up with the feats that you've selected and they marry up with the class features you've selected so that at this level you can do this much damage in one turn, I'm less likely to give a damn. But if you're like, I just think it would be really super cool if my character found a sword of ice uh, and that just became sort of his uh, or her, you know, calling card that, that, you know, they were half frozen bodies left behind when I kill orcs, I'm much more likely to go, that's, that's a cool story element that builds to the world, probably will go with it more than just, I want to be able to do 57 points of damage on my offhand attack at 17th level. No, you're absolutely right. And we keep harshing on 4th edition, but 4th edition was built to need that. 4th edition was a tactical combat simulator where it was totally acceptable and absolutely required as part of the mechanics to strategize what magic items had synergy with what class abilities and how did that benefit or complement everyone else in your party. That's how that system worked. And in that context, handing out magic items because they were necessary is absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, and again, I don't want anybody to think I'm harshing on 4th edition. I did grow sort of out of love with it. So when it first came out, I loved it. It reinvigorated my love of RPGs, but the more I played it, I kind of soured on it. I still say it's the easiest to learn to DM. Like, I really love 5th edition. I think 5th edition is great for someone like me who's played a long time and has a lot of comfort level. But if I have someone who's never ran a game before in the world, you can't hardly beat 4th edition for learning how because it is so mathematically balanced and it's like a to b to c to d you just do this and the game will work and then you can focus on role play and like building balanced encounters and it has the things like environmental effects which are cool so yeah so i don't even think i'm harshing on fourth edition it's not my favorite but it does things very very well and i respect that and skill challenges you know i still like to use those i don't use them exactly the way they do but it's that introduced a, an idea to my game that i didn't have before um yeah there's a lot i take from fourth edition that i still like And overall, I absolutely agree with you that developing story connections to magic items is always more rewarding. Now, whether you come up with those connections in your story ahead of time, or whether they develop organically as the game develops, that's fine too. I mean, what if in your example of the character with the ice sword, what if in the story that character finds the ice sword and the legend starts to grow about her exploits. And then she starts to build upon that. Maybe she 
makes some class choices to strengthen those abilities or always seeks out a specific type of cloak or color tunic or something to to build upon this legend that is evolving within the game. And that's exactly what I was talking about. I didn't, I may not have articulated it well, but when I talk about it, it becomes important to the story and to the character where they will model their character around this item that they may have found at a low level rather than, again, just chucking it over their shoulder as soon as they find the next item that is plus one more powerful or it has a different power they like better type of a thing. So yeah, that, that's what I want to happen in my games, and I'm not saying they always do, but I want you to find something that you will then sort of model your character around because it is such an important thing, and they're so rare, you may not get another one. You, know, you can't take the chance that, okay, I have the ice sword, but I really wanted the fire sword. There may not ever be one of those. So all in all, however you want to use magic items, as long as it makes sense to you, as long as it's right for your table, it's the right thing to do. Just like all advice we come up with on this show, there is not really one straight answer. But I think it's safe to say that the magic items that end up being used in a game end up being a way to define your character. As long as they function in a way that benefits the story, benefits character development, if they are a way to make your character unique and exciting, then they are functioning properly. And speaking of making characters unique and exciting, that's a great transition into what we're going to talk about next. Yes. So there was a couple of things that happened on Reddit, um, because there's always things happening on Reddit. And we're going to condense that down into a kind of a hopefully tight topic is how do you make NPCs memorable? Now, we've covered on here several times before. How do you, how do you create connections so that your your players and your PCs will care about NPCs? You know, and there's ways where you can have the players help create them. Uh, you could have them share some sort of backstory. You know, the, the random bartender that they meet isn't as you know, isn't as important to them as the one who shares their backstory or maybe does them a slight favor or gives them a small a discount on their food because of X, Y, or Z. You build these connections. But beyond that, how do you make an NPC memorable as the DM running that NPC? So uh, Matt, as our improv expert, I will, I'll defer to you first. What are some techniques that you've used to make NPCs memorable in your players' eyes? Um... Let's think. Uh, usually, I'll uh, I'll try to give them a, a a weird tone of phrase or a weird kooky um, personality. I based a character off of creepy Kylo Ren in a campaign, where I like um, said things like "I'll finish what you started" like all the time, and was like always creeping around corners. And that that did he that say that off pretty well? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like like Denny's Grand Slam. I will finish what you started. You start eating off their plate. I'm not even done yet, dude. Jesus. Exactly. Like he'd be creeping around the corner and be like, hey, I see you over there. Would you like me to come with you? It's like, no, stay over there. I'll come with you. I promise. He'd be very insulting, but also very needy. It was was a good little character. So basically what you're talking about is creating behaviors, verbal tics. Mm -hmm. Exactly specific actions, specific things that are easy to pick up on and identify with an NPC. And personally, I find the more 
points you can tie it to to something that they can relate to in another media or or medium it, the better so if you're basing it off of link from from zelda they'll attach to it a lot quicker than if you're making up this totally random character just i don't know if that's just the people i'm playing with or if it's something everyone does but i feel like if you if you're basing someone off the professor from the you know gilligan's island they're gonna be like oh shit the professor guy yeah i like him so i actually want to jump in there because this this is sort of a different topic but it's something i've i've dealt with where i try not to use modern day terminology Mm -hmm. because i think it breaks immersion but there are some times where it just makes so much sense and it can it can just cut through, you know, three sentences of dialogue or exposition and just say, it's like Vince McMahon from WWE. This is who you're dealing with. And everyone knows what you're talking about. Everyone has a great idea of what's going on. And it's something I go back and forth with on what I, if I want to use it or not. But it definitely works in my mind. You know, sometimes, again, the 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 realism or the immersion might drop but if if there's just if it's just sitting there like a home run ball where you're like hey yeah that's that guy i'm not i'm not afraid of using that one one thing i've tried and uh, succeeded with pretty well uh, at least that i feel is is come up with that that single example and and hold that in in my head as i try my best to describe this character to my players and if after about three sentences nobody's blurted out the obvious oh it's morpheus right then i will give them that because uh, it seems much more satisfying for for to me at least to to uh, as good practice to be able to describe someone and and get to the nut of what they are and it's also fun more fun at the table if if the players think that they're ruining my day by naming this person Morpheus which I'd really rather prefer them be you know a strong silent type who's driven by a mysterious past and and uh, you know like a uh, uh, promise from a, a deity of a vision of the future that may or may not be right like oh morpheus right oh you silly kids <laughs> all right so you you kind of answered it there but was there anything else that you want to cover from the original question scott on how you make them memorable so we've talked about how you describe them but is there anything that you do to say okay i want to make sure that this is an npc that's going to be important it's going to be important for a long time how do you make them stand out from all the rabble uh, that, that's in the village or the town that the PCs are in? That's kind of a good general question. I mean, we've, we've talked about uh, easy, basic, uh, verbal, or, or men, uh, menial ticks, and, and I will throw out on that note, um, uh, Jill Bernard has a book on Vapapo, which, which is for improving, but it, but it has uh, some just real basic concepts about adopting a notable voice, attitude, posture, animal proper obsession and just one of those can add a lot of depth to a character quick but you're 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 really uh, i think michael your question got to the heart of the the matter which is how do you make them memorable and i think that the only way that you go from uh, novel or interesting to memorable and novel and interesting is hard enough i mean every single guard in the city can't be novel or interesting so that's a, a challenge of its own but to go from that to memorable i think the only thing you can do is is make people feel empathy for the character right i've i've had players trash through a, a, a garden of, of interesting novel NPCs that, that they had no emotional connection with. And I've had them meet an NPC somewhere that they, in fact, I'm, I'm a player in a game where we met a slime 
a, a, a jelly, an ooze that, that, that talked back when we started talking to it. And now we've, we've put it in the party. We drag it with us everywhere, despite having to feed it, despite the fact that it moves at 10 feet per round. And it's this huge inconvenience because it has this adorable little personality. And we all empathize with it being stuck in this horrible dungeon for like a hundred years. And, and it's, we're best friends, right? So if you can achieve that emotional bond, right? Some, some degree of empathy, I think you've won. Okay. So again, that sends me off on another tangent, uh, and then I'll, after I go on this, I'll turn it over to Caleb. But it's kind of like I've, we've talked about before about the inverse ninjutsu uh, principle that you know if there's a hundred ninja, they're easy to kill. If there's one ninja, they're badass. The same thing can go for like pets. Like if you're fighting a hundred goblins, you will kill all of them. If there's one goblin, you'll adopt him. <laughs> that is brilliant. I think didn't that happen in a game we started to play and then didn't anymore? Probably. But I've seen it happen over and over again, where the single goblin is almost always adopted into the party. Not always by agreeable nature, but <laughs> it often happens. So, Caleb, question to you. How do you make your NPCs memorable in your game? Uh, man, this is something I struggle with. My, my default instinct is to use voice work. I, and I think that's because... I, I see all these fantastic actual plays. I watch so much animated stuff on television, and I see these actors that are able to just create these people with just their voice, and I wish I could do that. And I can't. I absolutely cannot. I'm telling everyone right now I fail at this every time I try. But instinctually, I think it is the right thing to do. So my gut feeling is always, okay, how does this person sound? How does this person talk? How do I uh, take on this person's voice while I am role-playing in their shoes? And honestly, if we want someone who's an expert at that, we can go over to Quinn, and Quinn can just knock it out of the park. Because Quinn is amazing uh, on Swallows of the South to do that. But since I'm so bad at it, and I absolutely fail every time I try, I think the best way to make a memorable NPC is to base it off of player choice. And this is kind of what Scott said. If a player latches on to a random monster and decides to adopt it, run with it. If a player strikes up a conversation with a merchant Build that merchant in that moment. I remember an old game we used to play, not with this group, way, way, way long time ago when I was in college. One of the missions we were on was basically saving a kidnapped kid, right? Well, uh, one of the girls we were playing with, she was a paladin, and she decided that she was going to swear a holy oath to her divine being that she followed to protect this kid at all costs. So instantly, this kid became a super important NPC. So in that situation, as a GM, I probably would not have fleshed out this kid. It's just, save the princess, get it done, right? But when my player said, based on role-playing, I am choosing to make this important to me, as a player, not necessarily as a character, but probably that too, but specifically to a player, I will then return that that expression of interest with details and involvement in the world. So I think the best way to make an NPC exciting is to find the things that your players are excited in and throw details right there. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Whenever possible, I think you should roll with what your PCs are finding and your players are finding interesting because it just makes your job easier. A few of the techniques that I use uh, is generally I try to find one thing about the NPC and I just lean heavy into that. It's just kind of the same way when I create a character that I'm going to play, I try to come up with two or three things about that character that I've, I'm interested in. I lean into those three. Uh, if you guys are listening to Dark Discovery, I don't know if you are or not, uh, but one of my favorite NPCs I've created in a long time is Foss, who's this old kind of kooky, crazy guy, and he's he's hard of hearing, so he goes, what? All the time. And just, I'll interrupt people, and everyone at my table loves Foss. Like, they just think he's, like, the greatest NPC in the world, and all I've done with him is they go, what? Huh? What? And that's it. Um, I try to play against type, so the overweight thief the very young priest or mayor, uh, you know, again, the lovable drow who's a good guy. Those types of things make people interesting. So it can be playing against expectations. And it can also just be picking out like a physical thing. Someone who's got their ears are a little bit too big. Uh, in one of the games that Caleb and I played in for our patrons for a long time, I gave one of the NPCs kind of like the lazy eye. And that was just something that that they always knew I was talking about that character when that came up. He was the guy who was de-aging because he was evil and he was turning, you know, into a young person. Oh, um, I knew who you're talking about. <laughs> I say because you didn't react. I was like, you just kind of ruined my moment. I'm supposed, he's supposed to be really memorable, and you're not reacting to it. So I had to further explain it. Well, yes, this is an audio podcast. I can't <laughs> give a visual reaction. No one else gets it. Well, but I would have reacted to your reaction. Eh, I don't care. Uh, so physical things like, again, ears that are too big, nose a little bit long, a, like a weak chin, scruffy beard, uh, you know, one eye is one color, one eye is the other, scars, uh, shiny shoes is a good one. You know, you live in a medieval world, you're walking in mud and gross gr grime all the time. If you meet someone who has impeccably clean shoes, that says a lot about that character. If you meet a guard whose equipment is all dirty and frayed, that tells you a lot about that guard, or at least about the guards in the city. So just pick one thing and lean into it. It's a running joke. I cannot do voices. I, as much as I like to try, I'm not good at it. Except Jamaican. I can hold an Irish accent. Except for Jamaican. I can hold an Irish accent for about three words before I turn into either Lucky Charms or a pirate. But... Is it a specific three words or just... <laughs> Just three words. <laughs> no, just basically I can start and then it just, I lose it no matter what it is. Gotcha. But having things like they talk faster or they talk slower, they use a lot of small words, they use a lot of big words, uh, you know, purposely say, uh, so what were you saying? And just sort of give them not an accent or a crazy voice, but change the way that you talk when you're in character. And then other, and again, I know we're audio right now, but, but you can do things physically at the table that your players will recognize. You can steeple your fingers under your chin. You know, you can scratch behind your ear. You can uh, cross your arms like you're uncomfortable. You can even stand up, maybe like if you're playing a really tall NPC, actually stand up at that time so you are physically taller. All these things will help you identify who that NPC is different. It's just very important that if you hadn't already determined that this is going to be an important NPC, if somebody you kind of improv on the fly, but they became important, make sure you remember what it was you did so that mm -hmm. you have the consistency the next time they meet them, because otherwise you've just ruined all the effort you put into it. That's an important point. 
And, you know, as we were talking here, I thought of something else. And Scott actually brought this up back at the start of this episode when we were talking about the games within the games. And Scott said, hey, let's just use the mechanic that already exists within the system to do what we're trying to do. Fifth edition has mechanics in the system to do what we're trying to do. It gives us backgrounds. It gives us things for players to focus on for their characters, right? It gives you those charts to roll on to pick how to help roleplay your character. Just do that for the NPC. If you need inspiration, maybe just pick one of them. Just pick a background. Just pick something that's really important to them, a vice, a virtue, something Roll that... a single bond. A single bond, right. Uh, yes, you're still going to do things like play around with voice and verbal tics and how they're dressed or how they move, but if you need that inspiration to make an NPC interesting, it's in the book. The, uh, the 5e DM screen gets a lot of flack from people because there's not a lot of useful information on it but it does include a whole panel on npcs and it gives you a way to randomly roll for names and for characteristics and for me i think that's actually more important than combat ranges or prices of how much food costs at an inn because i don't care about those things but i think that npc panel is worth the price of admission right there because it does the same thing it's not as in you know not like backgrounds but it's kind of like that to a lighter extent where, again, you can just roll and it'll give you one detail about that NPC that you can, again, lean into and do the heavy lifting. If you don't want to buy the, the 5e DM screen, that's fine. You can easily make your own version of that. There's probably a copy of this online somewhere that you could just, you know, you could just copy and paste your own. Uh, but absolutely, having I, I'm not a fan of random magic tables, but I'm all about an NPC table where I can roll a couple die on the fly and it will help me figure out how I want to play this NPC if I haven't already created one. Because that's the thing about players, as we've said many, many, many times, they never do what you expect them to. So if you've created this very interesting NPC that they're going to interact with at the temple, and they say, F that, we're not going to the temple, are you prepared to make another NPC just as interesting? You could always take the what you had created for the temple master or the priest or priestess and turn that into the money lender at the bank or the mayor or the tavern keeper. Or you can just say, okay, you walk in, there's a person behind the bar, two dice, uh, they're really lanky, and they have a boil. Okay, that's probably going to be memorable, because who wants to eat at the tavern with the guy with the boil serving them gruel? A hard-boiled detective, obviously. <laughs> exactly. Uh... All right, so uh, any last words from anybody about uh, memorable NPCs? Scott? I think, um, you know, play to your strengths and and uh practice and and whatever you're doing it'll get better matthew polymorph dragons every single one of them fair <laughs> Caleb? nah i i think we've uh beat this dead horse enough uh as scott said play to your strengths pick pick something that you're good with working with find that one detail you like and uh, just react to your players Create an NPC who beats dead horses. Every NPC. Oh, ho hold on, fighter. I'll be right back. Whack, whack. <laughs> I I'm sorry. What did you want? Okay, I'm here. That would be a great NPC yep. for a Western. <laughs> I think they did that in, in uh, Blazing Saddles. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, I think that pretty much wraps it up. So this has been Michael for Caleb, Matthew, and Scott. 
We are adjourning the faculty meeting, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at The RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.